This podcast is brought to you by the Immigration Law Series by Emond Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome home, everybody. This is a podcast about Canadian immigration law. If you're an immigration practitioner or a student looking to get into this area, or maybe just someone looking to learn about immigration, this is a podcast for and about you. Chantal and I will tell you what you need to know, bring you expert guests to share their wisdom, and we're all going to have a lot of fun doing it. So sit back, enjoy, and welcome home. And now, Chantal is going to do some interpretive dance. Woo! Check me out. Check out these dance moves. Look at this one. Can you see me? Can you see me now? What about now? Today on Welcome Home, we have a very special guest, our friend and colleague, Pantea Jafari. She is the founder and the lead counsel at Jafari Law in Toronto. Aside from doing paper-based applications for immigration, she also does a substantial amount of litigation, particularly in the federal court, which is quite interesting. She's also recently litigated a very uh, complex and interesting and helpful case in the federal court, which we'll speak to her about today. Also on today's segment, we'll do What I Wish I Knew, and the topic today is dealing with difficult clients. Hello, everyone. Uh, We are very pleased today to welcome our colleague and special friend, Pantea Jafari. Uh, Pantea is the founder and the lead counsel of Jafari Law here in Toronto. Uh, Her practice encompasses a wide range of immigration matters uh, and and notably a significant litigation component. And that's what we want to talk to Pantea about today. Uh, We really welcome you, Pantea. Thank you so much. I know you're really, really busy. We appreciate your time. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself, whatever you want to mention. Thanks, Chantal. Thank you both for having me here today. Um, well, uh, at Jafari Law, we do the barrister side work and the solicitor. And for listeners who might not know that, that means we do court work as well as preparing applications for submission. And uh, the court work gives us a lot of insight on what to include or improve on the submission side. Uh, but uh yeah, we need to do both aspects because we find more and more that the decision making out of the visa posts and inside Canada is not what it used to be and certainly not what it should be. Yeah, I um, I always say when I'm teaching classes that there's nothing like doing litigation of refused cases to give you some deep insight as to the types of mistakes that get made. And I mean, not only mistakes that other people make, but you know, you hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You sometimes look at a file and think, oh, I really wish I'd included that document and now it's too late. Right. It, yeah. Litigation is a great learning experience on what you should be doing. So when you get a file to litigate, sometimes I find it's a really good learning experience to say, oh, maybe I should, you know, screenshot some of the immigration timelines at the time I file this application just to keep that on file. So if I need to litigate, it's there. All those little things that you learn along the way. And I think it also shows you um, the thought processes of of officers. So when you're preparing applications, you can... uh, you can think that, okay, I've really thought about everything under the sun. If they take issue with this, with this, with this, I've got X, Y, Z lined up to address those concerns. And then you see the reasons for refusal and you're like, wow, that was new and something I could, I really didn't anticipate. So I, I find that 
the more refusals we get, the more nuanced the, the reasons for refusals become. You, you address one issue and then they transmute it into an, a new concern. It might not be legally valid concern, but it's still something that's on their minds that's causing a refusal, that's causing your client to have to bear the hardship and cost of coming to court. So whether you like it or not and whether legally required or not, it adds more and more to the package that you have to prepare and submit in the first place if you're trying to avoid litigation, if at all possible. And the other thing, too, is it makes you look at the law. I find whenever I get a scenario, fact scenario, I think, I'm going to go back and read the law. The Facts. law? The what? <laughs> Crazy! <laughs> um, and, you know, when I look at that, when I have that fact scenario in mind and actually read every single word of the law and I'm critical of every word in that particular, you know, section. Sometimes I look at things a little differently or I think, oh, I never, I could interpret it this way or that way or what about this? So I always tell people, go back to the law. Always first principles, law. always. Absolutely. The, the first lesson I ever learned from my articling principle, which I'm, I use to this day and I teach to all of my students, is always, always, your starting point is the actual dictate of the law then the regulations then go from there. You have to know what uh, what the standard is before you go to any defense or accountability or anything. You need to know what it was that was uh, needing to be proved. But interestingly, uh, while oftentimes it might make you rethink of your take on a particular law, which you're suggesting that you look at and you're like, oh, I didn't think I could interpret it this way. More and more what I'm finding and this could be a result of the particular visa posts I'm dealing with. But more and more, I'm finding that officers seem to have either no grasp of the law or don't care to, to follow it. Because the, the things that are coming out are, are diametrically opposed to what the law says should be happening. I'll give you a really brief example. Um, I had a client who won her residency appeal at the IAD. And we notified the visa post, both the hearings officer and our office notified the visa post that the, the appeal had been won and to please um, issue the travel documents so the permanent resident can return to Canada. After months and months and months of follow-ups, they finally acknowledged the decision, but then said she needs to apply for a new travel document. Uh, uh, initially, they said she needs a new application. Then they said, no, we can proceed with this one, but it's going to be subject to a new assessment and another four to six months of processing time for the assessment. And I'm like, no. That's, that's almost contempt. Yeah, that, That's yeah. completely legally incorrect. Legally, when you have that appeal decision, you're just supposed to put it into action and issue the travel document. So we went back and forth and I got a manager involved and thankfully was able to resolve the situation. But now we don't even have access to a lot of the managers and, and senior level people to address these issues with when the officers aren't seemingly even reading the laws that they're supposed to be um, enforcing and applying. And with web forms taking eight to 12 weeks to be attached and looked at and addressed, it's awful. Absolutely. I remember, Absolutely. I remember the days when <laughs> you could pick up the phone and solve that problem in a phone call yep. or a very quick email and yeah. they would address it. Absolutely. I remember a day where um, through the help of a really, really amazing visa post manager, I was able to get a person a visa in four days who'd been refused seven times. But that's something that I wouldn't even mm. dream of uh, in the present dynamic of, you know, redacting all contact information and no longer providing our bar with 
the the regular coordinates of different um, stakeholders that we normally get. It's just it seems to be going more and more behind hidden walls yeah. <laughs> that yes. we have no access to. And it's like the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain, right? <laughs> As I, I find also that it, it puts an unfair amount of pressure on the court system to have to challenge uh, decisions or non-decisions for that matter. Um, sometimes you're trying to force a decision. So y- you end up in unnecessary litigation, which costs the government overall so much more money and plus the effort and the expense to the client, it's not fair. And not only the court system, but also um, even internal IRCC processes. Like, for example, if you happen to uh, have direct contact with a particular officer who's helpful, that person ends up getting completely overloaded because other people are not responding to their requests. Absolutely. And as we know, the the reward that you get for doing an excellent job in this business is that people give you more work. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that's, it's really unfair and it just, it's like putting your finger in the hole in the dam, right? And like another hole open somewhere else. It's like on one side I think that they feel like they're being more efficient and saving themselves time and effort, but it's only making more time and effort for other people at the government level. Absolutely. So do you think that it's a lack of training, uh, a lack of officers really, you know, feeling the need to help people? process? Do you think that they're too pressured to do their job? Why Why do you think the change? Because I don't feel like it was like this 10 years ago. Well, you know, I mean, you get tit- tidbits of information through various litigation. So for example, the group one we're going to talk about today, um, I had the opportunity to cross-examine uh, a, a visa post manager, which is something that is rare in our field of law. And that cross-examination actually gave me a lot of insight that about uh, how IRCC decides what cases, when, where, where to move them, and things like that. And, you know, we we might think of fairness and justice, oh, someone's been waiting a long time, or this is a more dire circumstance stuff, but I don't necessarily think that they think in those terms. I think the the issue ends up being um, what would be legally defensible. Uh, I see a, a lot of that in ATIP communications that come back when people are discussing how to prioritize what to work on or whether inventory needs to be moved and stuff and under what circumstances. And certainly in our case, there was discussion of, well, we need to do X for it to even be defensible on litigation. Um, but then maybe it's resource constraints because even that doesn't get followed. So I'm not sure. I think also there is um, almost an air of invincibility because an officer who's making you know all these decisions dozens and dozens a day, they probably know that not every one of them is going to be able to afford to litigate their the outcome. Almost nobody. Almost nobody. It's yeah. a small fraction. And as a result, and even when it gets litigated or sent back, I don't think there's any reprimand or, or anything happening to the officers whose decisions are, are continuously reviewed. So, you know, we've had this problem in the refugee context where there are members that like uh, have a disproportionately high number of refusals and stuff. But I think at the end of the day, when one person at a time proves that there's something wrong, we can't get to the bigger problem. And 
that for me has been the biggest le- lesson of this litigation. I really think we need to move towards group litigation because the problems that we're experiencing are not one-off problems. It's not your one client is having a problem with the length of processing of X application. It's usually a series of things because IRCC doesn't look at applications as an individual, this person I like, this person I don't like, right? They're looking at it as a mass uh, that has similarities or differences that they can, you know, make decisions based on. So I think we need to start doing the same as a bar, as a, as a legal community. I think we really need to start working together to gather evidence and to try to um, hold decision makers accountable for their actions. Well, with that actually, because uh, I know that you recently had a really significant win of that nature in the federal court. Uh, and that really piqued my interest because your approach, I think, was quite different. Uh, and you got great results. So I'm sure our listeners would be really interested to hear about that. Do you want to maybe flesh it out for us, what the issue was? And Sure. Um, I'll give you a brief overview first, uh, and then kind of how it developed. The brief overview that we've now been able to piece together after four years of litigation, lots of ATIPs, cross-examination of the program manager, everything, all of it in totality, what we, we've come to understand is that in, in 2018, there was a, a backlog of self-employed applications out of the Ankara visa post, and they wanted to move through the inventory. Warsaw um, said that they have the capacity to take on that inventory, so a decision was made to transfer the inventory over. Those would be mostly Iranian applicants, I imagine, right? Through, Absolutely. Through Turkey? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So there, there were actually a couple of other nationalities whose applications were held as well. But initially, at least, it seems the Iranian applications were transferred. After that, I'm not sure. Because as you can imagine, the ATIP evidence is difficult to get, often redacted and and you have to do a many really long time. Exactly. It's not like you do one ATIP and you actually get what you're looking for. Absolutely. I, I, there have been files where I've done 13 to 15 ATIPs. Absolutely. Digging, digging, digging. I, I think the art of ATIPing itself should be something that's taught, but that's a different story. Uh, but anyway, so what we've discovered is that uh, when the transfer was happening, there were lots of discussions as to the process that needed to be followed and the notice that needed to be given to clients. Specifically for the self-employed category, I'll uh, just tangentially explain that there aren't um, very detailed instructions to applicants at the outset of the process. In Mm -hmm. fact, it says, here's the basic, don't send me anything else until I tell you what else I need from you. Okay? So the... Um, internal discussions of top IRCC agents confirmed that there were discussions of the procedural guarantees that were required. Ankara was routinely sending document requests. Um, Ankara advised uh, Warsaw that, you know, you should do this when uh, they, the inventory arrives um, and that uh, even a draft was, uh, a document request was drafted. And then there are internal discussions because this category was intensively studied by IRCC in the years before. So there was a, um, it seems to be a very cumbersome program for IRCC, long processing times and a lot of resource requirements. So they did an internal investigation of what's going on, what's the problem with this program. 
um, that it's so heavy for us. And that uh, investigation resulted in a report that confirmed the problem is the lack of upfront instructions. People don't even know if they qualify for the program or not until they start the process. And a lot of them don't qualify and they shouldn't have applied, but they don't know that upfront because we don't tell them. Well, and the legal criteria are a little bit gray, right? Like the, it's a qualitative description yeah. uh, in terms of the criteria for self-employed, right? It, it, it could mean a lot of different things. Absolutely. And um, so in those uh, investigations as well, IRCC agents had confirmed that in, in, in terms of internal discussions that for this category, to for us to have a defensible refusal, you must at least do an interview, send a document request, something like that. Even if your intention was to refuse and you refuse all along, at least placate the applicant by having those things first. So Warsaw was aware of all of this information, but chose to not do any of it. They categorically made a decision not to send document requests and not to interview. Mm. Aside so, from whether that's fettering discretion of an officer altogether, um, the court ruled that uh, that was unlawful. It was a breach of the um, applicant's right to procedural fairness, and it was a breach of their right to know the case to be met because they're not advised of it up front, and at no point in the process were they given that instruction set that Ankara was usually uh, providing, and as a result, all of, not only, um, the, the court ruled, obviously, the situation was unfair, so uh, our clients will now um, have their applications reopened, but it, it leaves open everybody else that was transferred to Warsaw as well, and that has since been processed out of Warsaw, um, and whether they would have um, similar circumstances to come before the court. Well, not only that, but I, I imagine that Warsaw is not the only visa post that would have done similar things with other categories of applicants, right? Well, that's exactly the case. This is why I'm saying the move should be towards group litigation. Because what we're not realizing is that this is just one small incident of a couple of hundred applications that we were able to reveal through four years of litigation and investigation and everything. But if we think about it, how often is this happening? How often is it likely happening with different categories, different subsets, different processing quotas, different visa posts? Um, and I think that the problem is a lot bigger than we realize. And, and one of the important pieces of the case is that the court op um, opined that where a visa post has traditionally done something and there's a change, because now with uh, the global case management, the inventory can be moved around really easily. If it changes to another visa post and that visa post has changed basically the process or the substantive things they're looking at to approve an application that's different than the other post, they, they now have, not they now have an obligation, but the court opined that there is an obligation to let the applicant know because otherwise they, there's, a, there's a, a, a real change in the case to be met that they weren't aware of. It's almost like a legitimate expectation or... It is. So mm -hmm. in our case, uh, it was it was the procedural fairness was under the issue of legitimate expectation. So mm -hmm. uh, one issue was that there was a legitimate expectation born out of the um, guidance to officers, so the operational manuals. Because the um, government didn't uh, take that uh, instruction set off its website or at least note that it was no longer in effect, the court opined that it created a lot of confusion and um, applicants had at least... Uh, 
a te- temporal kind of expectation that those uh, guidelines would be followed. And then a second set of legitimate expectations that were confirmed to be legitimate is that uh, the practice of Ankara, that they were routinely sending document checklists um, and Warsaw was not, was also a, a breach of legitimate expectations. A lot of our listeners are immigration lawyers and consultants. What kinds of things should be a red flag to them along the way? So you mentioned how we should approach this as a group. So that way we can get together and maybe we can send them all to you (laughs) to litigate, which would be great. I would love that. So if we're going to do that, what kinds of things should we be looking at? Like, should we be tracking all of our no's, our negative decisions, reviewing what visa post it comes from, why it's a negative decision, what kinds of things would be helpful or what are we what are we looking for there? Well, I think that's also another very interesting thing coming out of the decision because especially when you speak of legitimate expectations. So in this case, it arose because we had affiants that were consultants who were able to swear to the normal practice they were seeing out of a certain visa post for however many years. That's not something you would ordinarily get in a case. But... Even with that, the judge opined that where a person is represented, it would take about six months for them to understand that there's something different going on. And if the person self-represented, nine months. Now, I think that's, that's very significant. I, I mean, the numbers are relatively arbitrary and, and just chosen. But the court is basically telling us we should be talking to each other so that we can notice patterns that are happening. So if that's the case, I would say, if it, especially for people who are doing volumes out of a certain visa post or a certain category, they would be better able to detect processing changes and result changes. Um, and when you do notice something that's different than what you're used to, I, I would suggest that you start um, conferring with colleagues to see if that's their experience as well and immediately start figuring out if there is um, potentially a larger problem that needs to be investigated. That, that really is um, a, a plug for, uh, you know, being networked with each other as well. I, I think that's something that, at least in the immigration lawyer community, uh, we're pretty good at that. I mean, we talk to each other all the time, and there's not much territoriality about information. I mean, when people find something helpful they share it with the others. Um, the consulting community, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, how that would be different. Like I know, I know that consultants have their own, you know, Listserves, chat groups yeah. and listservs and stuff like that. So I would just say, to the extent that there may be people out there not adopting that attitude, they should adopt that attitude. Absolutely. Right. I think it it becomes a competency issue these days, mm-hmm. um, because. Like I said, if the court is going to impose on us some sort of obligation to be aware of these things and notify our clients of it, then then it is an obligation. Uh, mind you, we didn't get certified questions, so the decision will stay at this level and it's not appealable. So we can't we don't have a higher court judgment to see like if this is really now an obligation that's imposed on all lawyers. Uh, but really the decision said after six months i don't care that the visa post didn't notify them of this change i expect that you would have known about it Hmm. because six months has passed or nine months has passed it it also highlights not just observing what the normal process is but making sure that your tickler system or your bf dating system is in place to follow up on that file every couple months just do a quick check-in is it going the way it should Um, i think that is key as well 
But I'm kind of interested in, in this concept because I, I think that feels a little unfair to me that, you know, we should somehow magically know, um, you know, it, so most practitioners are dealing with multiple different visa posts and multiple different kinds of applications all year long. I mean, there are some people that hyper specialize that they, you know, they only do investors from this country, but the mo- most of practitioners do a broader range of, of things than that. And they're not only dealing with one visa post typically. So that, that seems to me to be um, a bit of an onerous obligation to expect people to just know things. I mean, if it hasn't been announced, how would you know? Absolutely. Especially as the IRCC walls get higher and higher and higher. It, it becomes a lot more onerous. Absolutely. And actually, when we were arguing the case, I, um, I argued before the judge that it's a reverse onus to say that the community should become aware of it rather because it would be so simple for the government to send a quick email. It has all of the capacity and can do it on a bulk basis as well, which has been proven through, again, ATIP requests. Um, so it has the capacity to do it in bulk. So for this inventory, for example, and it did. So when we examined the program manager, we, we noted, for example, that a, a, a request had gone out to people that were in, in our litigation and, and outside, it, all of them in one day and then the next day. So we thought that was something. So when we asked him about it, he said, yes, it's a, it's a, we had reopened after COVID because our office was closed for some time. So we did a blast to everyone in, in our inventory to say, we're here now if you want to send any updates, for example. So they have they have such an easy ability to do that. Uh, and why wouldn't you ask the government to notify an applicant of these changes rather than reverse the onus and say your representative should discover what has happened within six months or whatever? I, I think it is a reverse onus. I don't think it's necessarily fair, uh, but at least it's a starting point to say there is some sort of obligation and it continues whether they tell us or not for at least some period. And what, it, what about self-represented people as well? I nine mean, months. They wouldn't have a hope in hell, frankly. They really wouldn't, because how would you know? Who else would you confer with? Mm-hmm. How would you become aware of of a traditional practice of a different visa post? Know that your application has been changed to a different one, and that this one now has different practices. Well, not only that, but why should I break my own privacy to go around telling a bunch of other people that I've applied for immigration to Canada? Many people don't want other people to know about that. Absolutely, and if even if you breach privacy to ask. Many aren't going to breach their privacy to tell you. Right. That's why, the, again, the, the litigation was so interesting because as a community, the applicants got together, those inside and outside the group, to, to draw together comparative evidence to say, look, all we can do, that all that's in our control, because I don't have the ATIP un, unredacted versions that you do, and I haven't thought of everything under the sun to ATIP, but all we can do is say, Everyone that was processed previously was approved with X. And even during the refusal times, everyone that was processed out of a different visa post was approved. So I can just do anecdotal evidence, basically. But that was hard to get. You had to get people to agree to release publicly their entire immigration application who aren't even in the group, who have no benefit to gain other than to help others 
prove that this was a problem. So we're really thankful that, that people trusted us in that way and, and shared the most intimate details of their life. Yeah. Um, Imagine if they weren't part of the same group. Like in this instance, most of them were Iranian. What if they weren't? What How if they would were, you have exactly? This never would have happened. It wouldn't have come to fruition unless, you know, one specific office was dealing with all of these files and noticed this change yeah. and then thought to litigate it. And that's how this litigation came about. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been detected, I think. But the, the person that saw something going wrong is someone that had done hundreds of these applications from the same visa post and was now seeing something really different. So it was easy to detect. But, and you see likely more consultants doing same type or same visa post than lawyers, but exactly, it's not something that's going to be uh, a discernible pattern that just jumps out at you every time something changes. And it's good to question. I find sometimes lawyers and consultants, we just kind of, you know, say, oh, it is, they take forever. Oh, let it go. Oh, just give this or that document. But I think it's good to question to say, is this the way it should go? Is this correct? Is this accurate? Is this in line with the operational manual or the PDI? What is this okay to happen? But you know, I find it so interesting because as lawyers, people expect us to hold a lot of power. And there's such a power imbalance in processing immigration applications that we just simply don't. So uh, there was case law at the time that said business plans are not required for this category, right? But categorically, Ankara was requiring them at the time like explicitly in a document request would say you are okay. So someone who's knowledgeable would say, you're not allowed to ask me for this, but since you have, and it's going to be, uh, you know, deemed negative if I don't have it and like lead to a refusal and blah, blah, I'm going to include it, but you're not allowed to ask me that. So what more can you do realistically? I always tell my clients, I say, what the law is, is, is completely separate and apart than an approval or a refusal because it's one individual that's making the, the decision. They could be having a good day, a bad day. They could know the law or not. They could be concerned about applying it or not, you know, and whether that individual in that second that they're making that final decision follows the law or not is not something that's in our control. All we can do is then take it to court and, you know, just do additional legal work to try to get um, the the desired outcome, but we can't prevent legally incorrect, procedurally unfair decisions from being made, even if they're so palpable. I, I get that a lot from clients. That's not on the checklist. Why do you want it? Because reality is different than a checklist. Exactly. And well, more than that, sorry, Chantel, more than that, I, I do find what's the background of that immigration officer assessing that business plan? Did they have? Do they have an MBA to be able to do that assessment? Because business plans determining whether something will be, you know, fruitful or not or get off the ground is a whole other kettle of fish. Absolutely. To the point where for the startup program, IRCC doesn't even do that assessment themselves. They've outsourced it to designated organizations. So, um, and, you know, we proved that they have none. They have zero training zero business training, no idea what necessarily to look at for a business plan, but these are people who made 
the lack of, for example, sourcing of the costing projections, a fatal issue that that d- did away with the rest of the application materials altogether. Like they would go straight to the business plan if it had that issue, which it all did because they were mostly prepared in the same vein as they were when they were in Ankara, then that became the singular reason to refuse the applications. Unbelievable. Yeah, I, um, going back to what you said earlier about, you know, providing documents that technically are probably not legally required. One of the things that I often say to my clients is like, look, if it's no skin off our back, really, it's better to just go along with it. Even if I don't think the request is justified, right? Because would you rather be right? Or would you rather get your visa? I say that to my clients all the time, all the time. Who wants to be the test case in federal court? Like, let's not go there if we don't have to. If it's a matter of providing this or that or the other thing, okay, it's a it's a pain, maybe it's a few hundred extra dollars. But at the end of the day, is it worth it to risk a refusal if, if you know, based on your practice, that this is going to be a requirement, whether written or unwritten? And that specific issue, I find to be a, a, a really big impediment to hiring, for example, because not everyone has that competency. Even as lawyers, there are a lot of us who uh, practice either areas of law or uh, have um, nationality of clients where things closer to the what's actually in the checklist might be might lead to an approval versus people from you know developing countries or whatnot where you know you have to put everything under the kitchen sink in and if the person doesn't have that awareness then you're not doing your client justice because you're you're doing not even just the bare minimum but you're doing what you think is is good and well because yes legally that satisfies you know this requirement and that requirement and this but you're not addressing the practical needs of that application type or that nationality type so when i mean our office handles a lot of you know marginalized individuals or or people from the middle east or whatnot and when we hire um a lot of our lawyers tend to you know have problems with that either they push back and say well why should i put it it's not required, it's superfluous. And I'm like, okay, like really 10 years, I'm telling you, you really need to do above and beyond because even like 500 page applications are being refused. So that's where experience comes in. Yeah. Yeah, that's just over the course of time, you just get to know those things. Yeah. I had one officer ask for literally a forensic audit of my employer on a work permit. I was so livid. So I wrote back saying, that's fine. We've gotten all this information for you. Could you please open eight portal spots so we can <laughs> upload all the documentation? <laughs> we started to, because we only had one portal spot open, so we we uploaded the first set of documentation. And they, after that, they're like, oh, you're approved. No problem. <laughs> no, no, but I have more. I have more documents. But you I went through me, all this trouble to you prepare ga- it. You gave me a list of 30 items that you wanted. It took us four weeks. We had to hire, you know, various auditors, et cetera. Literally a forensic audit. It was like they were selling the business. And you, <laughs> you know, gave list, me comply, you must read. <laughs> I'm going to force you <laughs> to do it. I don't want the acceptance. I want you to read it. <laughs> exactly. I was like, come on. <laughs> uh, oftentimes my clients tell me there's no way an officer is going to read all the stuff that you write. And that's probably true. But I keep telling them, I'm, I'm writing for a judge. 
not not the decision maker realistically because you know sometimes we'll have like upwards of five page affidavits because they're slightly complicated situations that need to be dis- explained described in detail intentions whatever these aren't things you can put on paper so let's swear an affidavit that's the 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 strongest evidence available to you in those circumstances so if the officer doesn't read it fine and then they opine on something that i addressed in those five pages then that becomes a reason where um you can go to federal court and say they they did in uh, their job improperly it's like it's like volleyball like you know somebody sets up the ball and then somebody spikes it so, you know, setting it up is the application. The exactly. judicial review is the spike. Exactly. <laughs> Ooh, I like that imagery. I think that's um, a really great, helpful hint for our listeners is to really write for the judge rather than the officer. What other helpful hints might you have? So a lot of our listeners, you know, they put together these applications. What could they do in that process? Because some of them can't go to federal court. Um, and some can. What through that application process would be helpful for them to know that would help you as a litigator? Well, I think they should all be reading some case law or case summaries or whatever, because like Chantal said at the outset, it really is one of the best tools to learn what to do better in the underlying applications. Uh, But aside from that, make sure you have a file copy of what you sent. The the, my Achilles heel has become uh, representatives that don't have copies of what has left their office. That becomes a big impediment. It needs to be A-tipped and stuff. It, it's important to reiterate in case listeners don't know this, uh, but when you take an application to federal court for review, and it's a review, um, let's clarify that it doesn't grant you whatever it is that you had sought. It's a review, and it goes back for redetermination if you're successful. But when you take it to federal court for review, um, your uh, evidence base is limited to what was in submission originally, for the most part. There are very rare um, uh, exceptions. exceptions. <laughs> there are very rare exceptions to that. Um, but so it's really important for us to see as litigation counsel to see what was submitted in relation to the reasons for refusal so we can opine on the strength or weakness legally speaking of that case and so where that uh, copy isn't available initially that becomes a big impediment so even if you don't have it you didn't take the copy immediately atip it as soon as you can and the second part is get it to litigation counsel as soon as you can because there are really tight timelines and they're often very strict so 15 days inside canada 60 if a, if the decision was outside um, and in that time the the applicants need to know a lot of things to make the decision on whether to proceed or not judicial review as we all know can be really expensive for the client on top of the fees that they've already paid for the underlying application. So it, it's a difficult decision. They need all that information up front so they can have time to, to think about it and decide whether they mo- want to move forward. And sometimes when we see that application, we say, okay, there were slight weaknesses, not, not weaknesses in the sense like you have everything in the checklist, but when you think of the reasoning and you see what judges are opining, I can see a judge say, oh, it was reasonable that they would consider this in light of this or whatnot. So where we think there's more of a risk to that, uh, we might um, opine that it's better to prepare a new application that's written exactly for a judge, basically, where you've 
set it up and prepped it for a perfect JR and then wait for the outcome of that to go instead. I, I think that maybe some people might hesitate to refer their client to a litigation counsel for fear that that counsel might rip apart the work that they did in the underlying application. And I know like I, I do some litigation as well. I mean, you do a lot more than I do, but I'm always very careful to take a step back and you know, give the benefit of the doubt to the person who prepared the application because hindsight is twenty twenty. Absolutely. You know, sometimes I've looked back at my own work and thought, geez, you know, I, I could have probably made this aspect stronger, right? And reasonable minds can differ on the approach to an application. So, I mean, to reassure people that the litigation counsel is not out to get you or to pick apart or find something wrong with your application. Um, I mean, you always do have those cases every once in a while where you do find evidence of misconduct or negligence, but those cases are few and far between. I mean, for the most part, you say, okay, well, yeah, this probably could have been better, but I can't say honestly that I would have done it differently myself, right? Like you don't hold people to a standard of perfection, so they shouldn't be afraid to refer that case to a lawyer for a judicial review. I find that the the cases where people are afraid to to let me see what's been submitted um, are usually those where they're not confident in their own work. Mm. Either either they they question their own competency or because they know they didn't do a, a good enough job and the client might finally see it. Because in a lot of situations, I find the client's never seen what has happened, what's been submitted. That's even, a whole other issue. That's a whole other issue. But that's in my experience, that's the majority of the situation, that when we get involved, that's the first time the person's even getting a copy of the application, seeing what was filed for the first time. Um, but so that becomes an issue. I think th- they're just generally not willing to let even the client see their work. And I've fought with a lot of cons- consultants on that issue. Um, and then the second part becomes, yeah, there's a legitimate concern that your work is going to be picked apart because the government's going to pick it apart. Right. No, I don't think from the fear necessarily is from from litigation counsel. Litigation counsel, all they will say to you is, this is a slight weakness. This could have been better um, evidence through this, 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 but let's see how it goes. It It's it's the back and forth of the litigation process that can be daunting because yes, the government's going to say, nope, you, you screwed this up. You screwed this up. You should have done this. You should have done this. We did everything right. Yeah. Cause so they're trying any- to defend the officer's decision. Exactly. If anything, I think the representatives should think of us, um, as their advocate because we're going to be there to defend what they have done and the application packages that they have submitted. So the more that they're cooperative and help us do that, um, the easier it would be for, for them, but most importantly, the clients. We do some litigation as well. And when I think I get a case, and I think that it should go back for another round with IRCC, I usually call up the person who put the application together and say to the client, go back to them and, and let's work together to make this application better. And here's how we're going to do it. Because uh, sometimes people just don't know. Um, and I think it's important that we work together to make the applications as best as we can. Collaboratively instead of client. competitively. Absolutely. Yeah. It's about the client, not not our egos. And I find I get a lot more business that way, oddly enough. They say, oh, call Catherine, go to Catherine. She'll tell you the truth. Yep. And sometimes the truth hurts. 
It could just be, look, we got to improve this application. Let's make it a little bit better. So that way, if you get a negative decision the second time, we can actually go to court and we we have solid ground to stand on. Absolutely. And oftentimes we can give those tips and send it back to the representative to, to make the improvements. Mm-hmm. Actually, a lot of what, what I've started to do at my firm is I get calls from lawyers, consultants all the time for mentorship. So even though I was, uh, and I'm happy to take anyone's call about a question they have, people that want more ready access to me actually go on a retainer. And then we have a, a, basically a consultation, a strategic meeting about a client file at the outset. They get the benefit of my experience on, I would do this, I would do this, I would this. And then they have peace of mind to move forward and, and prepare the best application that they can. I think that's responsible representation. I remember when I first started my practice, uh, because I was a very junior lawyer, obviously straight out of articles when I started my practice, I hired a, a, an immigration lawyer to review every single application with me. We would have a meeting at the outset, that strategic meeting to make sure I was on the right path of what I was planning and everything. And then at the end to make sure the ex- execution was clean because I didn't want to learn at my client's expense. And I think that is um, kind of a work ethic that that people need to really aspire to like sign on to because Mm -hmm. it's it's really important you can't learn at your client's expense it's not fair if you don't have um experience with us with a certain type of application certain nationality certain visa post or you do and maybe you're not getting the results you want and you want you know tips and tricks on how to improve it because maybe you just didn't think of something absolutely you should be leaning on colleagues for that that's that's what we're here for and as Chantal said actually we're a very very collegial bar uh, one of the most collegial I have experienced it in my peer groups who practice other areas of law. Um, and we're always willing to send an email response to someone that sends an inquiry, answer a call. You know, we're, we're, if, you're, if your focus is the service to the client and the outcome that they need, you will get past your ego and, and work collaboratively with other people. So I think what you're trying to say is that... Uh All of us are available for either a glass of wine, a coffee, tea. You can take us out, have a little conversation. We can be bought cheap. Real cheap. (laughs) That would be the nice kind. We usually just get the calls without without the beers and socialization at least. I'm very food driven myself. So if someone says there's a free lunch involved, I'm there. Scooby snacks. Not a problem. Absolutely. Whatever works. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that collaborative, that collaborative nature is very important. And I think that people sometimes lose sight of the fact that there are so many clients out there. People do not need to fight over them. No. You know, we don't have to pee on them to establish a territoriality. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous sometimes the, the defensiveness that some people show around their client base. I mean, if, if you do a good job, that's your best advertisement. You, you do a good job for people. I, I, sometimes, I mean... I, for example, I just did a consultation this morning with a, with a client on a very complicated legal issue involving multiple amendments to legislation over the course of time. And I said to him quite straightforward, I don't know the answer to your question off the top of my head. I think it's X, but I want to bounce this question off a few of my colleagues, particularly more senior members of the bar who have been around when those legal changes were made and might have a better memory of it than I do. And I was very straightforward with him that I don't have every answer in the world. It wasn't important to me 
for him to think that I was all knowing. What was important to me is to get him the right answer, even if that means that I have to ask someone else. Absolutely. And people actually appreciate that. They don't think less of you. They think, oh, this person's going to go the extra mile for me to cross check her information with three or four other people. That's fantastic. And then you pee on them. Then you pee on them. Then you pee on them. them. Hear that people, Chantal Deloge. Senior, senior member of the bar saying she doesn't know any, everything under the sun. So you should similarly not feel bad to admit that you don't know everything under the sun. And there's no mistake out there that people could commit that we have not committed ourselves. So Ooh, there's no yeah. judgment here. Absolutely. But we do it really well. I've had some really fun well. calls to Chantal really well. over the years. Help. <laughs> I screwed up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I guess... I'm, we have a few minutes left. Um, I'd like to know, I, I mean, a litigation like the one that you just en- engaged in with hundreds of, of applicants in a case-managed federal court proceeding, that had to have taken up a chunk of your life. <laughs> like, how do you, because you've got to also run a, another aspect of your practice, which is probably paying the bills more than this was, mm-hmm. I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you balance that? Yeah, you don't, kind <laughs> of. A case like this it takes on a life of its own and mutates and stuff. And then it's just there. Um, Because it was a super legally complicated one, uh, it wasn't even something I could hand off to someone else at times where I needed personal leave, family leave, whatever. So uh, that was a difficult part of the case for sure. Uh, Logistically, it's also extremely difficult. we need lots of CPDs around these sorts of things because it, it was a lot of spinning my wheels just to, just to figure out how to handle the client aspect because, um, and there are competing co- uh, interests potentially uh, that you have to explain at the outset throughout the process, anything changes. There is psychological issues. You have to keep up group morale because not everyone knew about the litigation or even people who knew about the litigation. The conflict specifically is that the group is going to take longer than if you go individually. And so a lot of, not a lot, but some people went individually and it ended up in case law against us because it was the exact same visa post, Iranians, same same decision-making format. But when looked at in isolation, again, why group litigation, I think, is the key, absolutely. And it's going to be my, my motto, slogan, catchphrase, everything going forward. Because when you look at a decision in isolation, like those cases did, it seemed like a reasonable decision. You wanted a, a really bells and whistles kind of business plan you wanted to see everything but when you looked at the context um, and the the overall decision making process uh, the court opined not only was it unlawful but that those cases should not apply to us because they were decided in a different context so all of the recent case law um, since we filed this this litigation in 2018 that has gone against us and there's been dozens technically um we, it doesn't apply to our case, which is goes back to what you were saying, Chantal, about uh, it being an excessive demand on our resources, on our court system. This is the reason why I think we got such a high cost award, that one of the highest in immigration history, because the government communication confirmed that they knew it would lead to litigation if they violated the, the applicant's procedural rights in this way, and they did it anyway. And not one, not two, not three, hundreds of people coming to the court with the same problem, same issue, of course, is very taxing. And it it was unfortunate that some of them went on a case by case and 
a few went positive, a few negative, but really rare that we would have the opportunity to, to bring this case forward, especially because, so with the 110 litigants in total that, it, that was the final um, applicant count on the last day, for example, we were able to gather evidence that we, we couldn't have otherwise because IRCC redacts all this information. I tried multiple different ways to get statistics on acceptance refusal rates and things like that, um, and they just weren't provided. But what we proved through the litigation is that we, t we took the date, time, and officer name of every single refusal, and we matched them to the 110 people. And that way, we could prove several instances of decisions being made by the same officer minutes apart. So when you're looking at four, five, six hundred page applications that are being decided on within a few minutes, you know something's gone wrong. Or they're yeah. a speed reader, right? Right. Obviously. <laughs> For sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. We, Definitely. We read 10 pages per second. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, the problems can only come to light when looked at in, in the totality of circumstances and more than a single case. I have, sorry, one more question. I want to make sure I get this in. So there might be people out there in a similar situation. Is it too late for them to do anything about that? Like if they weren't in that 110? No, definitely not. Um, I would highly recommend they contact our office we're, we're, because the case basically proved that people that were processed out of Warsaw without these procedural guarantees were denied their legitimate expectation and the procedural fairness rights owed to them. So, and, and, I, and I should say the, the judge, I think, was very specific and almost strategic in using the word class. They said that the conduct created class of people that had these circumstances. So definitely those that are similarly situated have a case, how they get that case resolved, whether it's through discussions with the minister, a court, or whatnot, uh, is uh, left to be seen. But certainly, they I would say they have grounds to have their application reopened. Mm -hmm. And how do they get in touch with you? Uh, they can contact us at 416-825-0650 or by email at admin at jafarilaw.ca. Okay, great. Great. Anything in closing, Catherine? Well, I'd like to know, is your uh, company slogan, two, four, six, eight, we're going to litigate? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. I might have Jafari to steal Law that. Litigate. I like it. I'm available for all ads as well and singing. You know? Yeah, That's... she's got a side gig as a jingle uh, writer. For sure. For sure. Good times. Well, listen, we want to thank you so much. Uh, again, as I said at the beginning, we know how busy you are. Um, you know, you've got a lot going on, your fingers in a number of different pies. So we really value your time and your insight as well. I know our listeners are going to really get a lot from the advice that you gave today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. 85% of immigrants in Canada become citizens, one of the highest percentages in the world. These immigrants used one of the many immigration programs that Canada offers at the federal or provincial levels in order to obtain their temporary or permanent residence. With so many programs, it's hard for an immigration practitioner to be an expert in all of them, but luckily, LPEN is. Legal Professionals Education Network offers over 20 immigration CPD courses per year to help lawyers and immigration consultants successfully navigate all types of programs with their clients. The feedback and the referrals that LPEN receives 
leaves us confident in their ability to deepen and broaden your Canadian immigration knowledge. LPEN's courses are of the highest quality, and their instructors are always experts on the subject, just like myself. Our courses cater to both new practitioners as well as more senior colleagues who are looking for advanced practical lessons. Find out why their customers come back to them year after year for their professional development needs. Visit www.lpen.ca, that's www.lpen.ca today to see how their courses can lead to more successful applications for your clients. Iman Publishing is proud to offer a one-time 30% discount to all LPEN annual pass holders. Things I wish I knew. Dooby 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 doo. Chantal, there are some clients out there that are very demanding of your time and they can be very difficult and challenging. How do you manage them? Like, do you put them in a corporate headlock? Do you give them <laughs> noogies? What kind of things do you do? Well, the two case types that, that sort of come to mind off the top of my head are equal and opposite uh, reactions to a situation. So you have clients who are like a drowning man that they grab onto you and you know, almost pull you under wa- water with the like the level of contact and um, reassurance and feedback that they need. And then you have on the opposite end of, of the spectrum, but equally difficult to deal with is the completely unresponsive client who has given you money and just expects you to magically pull a rabbit out of the hat without any participation at all. Uh, and I, I think probably in general, one of the keys that I use with both is just you know, boundary setting in terms of stating clearly what the expectations are in terms of the level and responsiveness of contact, both from myself and from them, and to really ensure that appropriate deadlines are set for certain things. So for the needy client, um, you need to be very clear about, you know, I will follow up the application when I think it's professionally necessary to do so. Not every time you call me, not every time you need a dopamine hit from getting a response from me. And on the other side of the coin, the very non-responsive client is that if I ask you for documents or information, I need it within a very specific period of time. And if I don't get it by then, I cannot guarantee you that I can get the job done for you. Yeah, we set some fake deadlines for clients to say, if we don't have this document by this date and time, you know, we will be unable to proceed or it may impact your immigration processing, etc. And I think it's important when you set those boundaries to stick to them. Because the moment you break them, they know that if they're even more persistent, they can just keep pushing you, pushing you, pushing you, um, then they can get what they want from you. So when you set those boundaries to say, you know, your application's been filed, normal processing time is three months, we will check in with you at month two and a half to give you an update. And we'll take a look at our portal then to see how your application is is proceeding. Then make sure it's at month two and a half and make sure you've got that bring forward date or that tickler date set for then and that you follow through with it. Because then it also gives them that level of trust that when you say you're going to do something, you do it. Yeah, we, we actually have both of those things written right into our retainer agreement. Um, the, the first example of we will follow up the application when it is professionally advisable to do so and not based on your demand. And we also have it in our retainer agreement that when we request certain documents and information from you, 
um, we, we need it within a reasonable period of time or else we're not going to be able to execute the project as, as we promised to do. I think that's important to set those expectations and also to have it documented so that, you know, because people during the course of the processing the file, especially if they're anxious, they will forget the things that they signed on for at the beginning of the file. So it's good to have something to go back to and say, you remember paragraph whatever of the retainer agreement? We did tell you at the beginning that this would be the case. And I, I know someone who used to work at a visa post. And one of the things she told me is that, you know, sometimes the more a person pesters, it is actually counterproductive. So I always give this example to clients. It's like, you know, we will follow it up when it's professionally necessary. If you do it more than that, not only is it not going to be helpful, it's just going to drive up your legal expenses, but it can backfire. If they think that you're bothering them too much, you're going to go to the back of the line. Yeah. I always give my clients an email to say, you know, we're in the yellow zone right now where we have excessive amount of communication. We will contact you on this date and follow up or have a conversation about your matter on, on that particular date. So that way they know we're going to bill you a lot more if you keep it up. If you keep this behavior up, we're going to bill you for every, we're going to start docketing our time and billing you for every communication that you have. We do bill a lot by the hour. And, and that's partially the reason why. It, it's also because in this day and age, you can never predict how much time is going to be invested in an application. I mean, even if you've done a million of them, you're always going to have a couple that go off the rails somewhere. It's just the nature of the business. But it's also to remind people that every touch point, it's like, it's increasing the amount of time that we have to spend responding to you. And therefore, you're going to have to pay a little bit more than somebody who has, you know, fewer touch points. Um, but I, I also find that um, it, it's really important to um, remind people that there is a professional line there, right? Like, I, I'll, you know, we're, we're nice, you know, we want to help you, we're friendly and things like that. But it doesn't mean that you can just call me whenever you want and just expect me to drop everything and pick up your call all the time. Um, it is a professional relationship after all. You don't expect your doctor to do it. You, you shouldn't expect your lawyer to do it either. Things I wish I knew. Scooby-Doo. The Canadian Refugee Protection Law Guide provides a concise yet comprehensive summary of the procedural and strategic elements involved in achieving protected person status for one's client. This handbook, written by one of Canada's foremost experts on the topic, David Matus and Gentiana Morina, guides you through the very practical detail on the various programs available, how clients physically reach Canada and begin refugee protection proceedings, and it will tell you how to prepare a claim. To get your copy today, visit emond.ca forward slash CRPG and enter promo code CRPG10 for 10% off. On behalf of our listeners, I'd like to thank Pantea Jafari of Jafari Law for being with us today and giving us some litigation helpful hints. You told our listeners how to make sure they can be litigation ready by making sure they keep a complete copy of the file, screenshot IRCC policy and timelines, the importance of access to information or ATIPS, and the difference between a review versus an appeal. Thank you so much for your helpful hints and all of your knowledge.
We greatly appreciate your time with us. The Welcome Home podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network, directed and published by Danan Haas, and marketing by Katrina Harley. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off titles in the Immigration Law series. Just visit emond.ca forward slash welcome home immigration and enter code welcome home at checkout. And we want to hear from you. Please email us with your questions or topics at welcomehome at emon.ca or leave us a voicemail at phone number 416-975-3925, extension 227. My name is Danan Hawes, and I'm the senior publisher at Emon Publishing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Welcome Home podcast. We at Emon Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class immigration law content including our Immigration Law Series, edited by Chantelle Deloge and Catherine Sawicki, our best-selling treatise, Canadian Immigration and Refugee Law, A Practitioner's Handbook, 3rd Edition, new initiatives like the Welcome Home podcast, as well as our EMOND exam prep ICCRC practice exams, and a host of immigration law casebooks and textbooks for law school, university, and college students. Emond is also the proud provider of most of the required resources for the Queen's Immigration and Citizenship Law Program for Immigration Consultants.